Welcome to Share Public Health, the Midwestern Public Health Training Center's podcast, connecting you to public health topics, issues, and colleagues throughout our region and the country, highlighting that we all share in public health. Thank you for tuning into this series, where we explore the benefits of strong partnerships between public health departments and public libraries. This project is a partnership with the Network of the National Library of Medicine, Greater Midwest Region, the Public Library Association, the Prevention Research Center for Rural Health, and the Midwestern Public Health Training Center. We're so happy you're listening and learning along with us. I'm Trish Hull. I am the manager of the Kearns Library branch of the Salt Lake County Library System. I'm also a founding member and current member of the Utah Health Literacy Coalition. And uh, we have been involved with health initiatives for a while now and are always looking to make partnerships. And so I've been involved with this public health, public library task force uh, for a while now and learned a lot. And I just want to say right off the bat that I was very privileged to actually go to Brooklyn Public Library about two years ago. And I spent about 10 minutes just taking pictures at the front door. I think Brooklyn Public is the most beautiful library I have ever seen. It is just gorgeous. And I went in and it was, it had so many awesome things. I, I brag about it all the time. So I was really excited to know we were going to be talking to you. Hi, I'm Eva Rezan. I'm the Director of Outreach Services at Brooklyn Public Library. Uh, Outreach services at Brooklyn Public Library focuses on um, reaching more vulnerable communities. So we have a couple different service areas uh, that focus on particular populations, including older adults, people impacted by incarceration, people experiencing homelessness, uh, immigrants. And um, most recently, we've been focusing on health. I and have a background working primarily with immigrant services and adult education. And in 2018, when I started as the director of our department, um, one of the first orders of business was a grant that we had gotten from Robert Wood Johnson to plan a health initiative. I do not have a library degree. I have a degree in Latin American and Caribbean studies, and I'm an adult educator. So I worked teaching literacy uh, to adults and English. And my first job at the library was coordinating an adult basic education program. And then I ended up working in English classes as well for adults and got really passionate about the work in libraries. It just seemed like the perfect place to be, (laughs) to do work without, it's this beautiful way of working in community without necessarily prescribing what people have to do that it's just this very open model of letting the door is always open and people come and you build relationships and start to see what people need. So I've found my professional home in libraries, but I'm not a librarian. And I think that's a really key thing that you just said, because I I don't think the world at large understands that librarians are connectors, building relationships and connecting different parts of the community to other parts of the community and to us all about the books. The books are still there. That's always our brand, but it's way more than that. And that, that connection piece is key. You mentioned a project where the Brooklyn Public Library partnered with the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. What did that look like? 
So the Robert Wood Johnson project was a planning grant um, for us to look at what was happening in public libraries across the country, look at the data in Brooklyn of where public health needs were and think through what a public health initiative would look like at Brooklyn Public Library. Um, so we interviewed, um, we worked with a consultant who had a background in public health. Um, we met with potential partners. Um, he interviewed a lot of people, including population health um, experts in New York City, um, other library systems. And um, we looked at the data. We had a planning group that met several times with him um, to document sort of the shape of, of how public health was viewed uh, in general at Brooklyn Public Library among people who were already invested in some way, whether they oversaw um, you know, our central collections around health or um, they had been involved with disabilities community or they had already been hosting health programs. Um, that's a lot of times what we find when we start to formalize certain services is that the work that has been happening for a long time, it's really just connecting those folks um, and to be more intentional and coordinated in the way that we did it, which makes it more possible to do larger, larger partnerships and start to set be more intentional about what we're trying to achieve. Um, so that planning process was about a year long um, and it produced a report and sort of a roadmap and action plan of what it was that we wanted to achieve um, and what areas we wanted to focus on. Um, so one thing that came out of that we met with uh, the Department of Health had recently been really focusing on um, racial equity and really using that lens to um, look at all of their work. And so we met, they had established some health equity centers in, um, in Brooklyn. We met with them and that was a really formative meeting um, to just really think about how we were impacting health equity. Um, it's very easy in the library to just sort of very broadly say, well, we do everything for everyone, um, but we also have very specific resources. So how can we leverage those resources to not just have a baseline of services that are for everyone, but also impact equity and think about deploying those, those resources in a way that's, that's conscious of the, the health disparities that exist in our community. So that's one of the reasons we focused on maternal health. Um, it's one of the reasons, I mean, obviously we're well positioned for maternal health, but that was one focus area. Um, we focused on mental, um, mental health as well, mental health and wellness. Um, and some of that had to do with the needs that we were seeing among the most vulnerable people that would come through our doors or um, sort of reflected health disparities that existed. As you mentioned earlier, public libraries are such important hubs for communities so it is exciting to hear them being recognized and utilized with the Health Equity Center's partnership. How did the Health Equity Centers within the Brooklyn Public Library come about? The Health Equity Center was basically the Department of Health, it was a community health center that they put in neighborhoods that had significantly lower health outcomes than the rest of the city. Um, and it was an attempt by the health department to look 
at both healthcare service delivery, but also some of the surrounding social determinants of health so that these health equity centers also, um, you know, had cooking classes for dads and, um, you know, visiting for people who were separated because of incarceration and other kind of social supports. Um, so they were, they were trying to look at different models beyond healthcare delivery. And that was interesting because it was sort of thinking, well, what's our, where do we best fit? We're not trying to like become healthcare delivery. <laughs> I wanted to ask you about your COVID-19 test and trace initiative with New York City Health and Hospitals. Um, I'm sure when COVID hit, you guys were forced to pivot like most places around the country were around the world. And this sounds like a really awesome initiative that libraries were able to participate in. Could you tell us about that? As I'm sure you know, New York City was hit very hard by COVID-19. And we didn't have an infrastructure at that time for testing. Um, So the city over the summer launched a huge uh, test and trace initiative that includes um, free testing all over the city, um, pop-up testing in mobile centers. Uh, It includes tracing efforts for anybody who tests positive and then also take care, which is, they call it test, trace, and take care, um, which means that also people who test positive have access to hoteling anyone who can't who shares a bathroom or lives in a space where it's hard for them to isolate has access to hotels um they have connections to food resources um they send people home test kits if they've been if they were um had a contact and are likely to have been exposed um so it's that is a huge operation um one piece of that 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 is part of the orientation that our Department of Public Health has taken um, in increasingly in the last decade or so um, is a huge piece of test and trace. They they had community engagement. So they knew they would only be successful with this huge operation that they set up if they partnered with community-based organizations and other members of different communities to get the word out, to build trust in what this program was, to answer questions, to um, talk about it in a culturally responsive way that is specific to different um, neighborhoods and communities. Um, So they put out a request for proposals to, uh, to do the community engagement and education around the Test and Trace program. And um, we are one of those 30 plus partners around New York City who are engaging in education and engagement for Test and Trace, which we thought was a really good role for us as librarians, you know, to, and as library staff. Uh, It was important for us, actually, we have both librarians involved in the project and administrative staff. Um, in our system, administrative staff are more likely to be from Brooklyn, <laughs> um, while some of our library staff may have, 
you know, grown up somewhere else and come to New York City as part of their um, career, a lot of our, what we call clerical staff, um, have, you know, grown up in Brooklyn and um, may have started as part-timers at the library and worked, worked in their branches for a long time or in their communities for a long time. So it was important to us to have a mix of different titles in our team. And what we essentially did is we reassigned 14 staff to spend half of their time doing community engagement and education around COVID. That meant tabling in front of branches, that meant um, going out and canvassing on busy streets, uh, popping into virtual programs and doing sort of like public service announcements, um, distributing masks, distributing palm cards multi in different languages um, and packages of materials um, to stay safe and just get the message out to normalize as much as possible from a trusted institution um, that getting tested was a good thing to do, to answer the phone when a tracer calls. Um, obviously masking has been a very contentious issue. So just kind of keeping, um, keeping masks very available and encouraging people to wear them. Um, so that's a lot of what the Test and Trace team has done. We also hired some part-time folks who had been working on our census efforts and had a lot of good experience working in partnership with community um, organizations and doing some of this direct outreach. So we, we have a team of about 20 people right now at BPL that are working on Tested Trace, including our community health coordinator who had, is a public health professional, but she and uh, one of the other librarians lead the team with me and we um, do outreach every single day into different communities, into priority zip codes um, that the Department of Health sends us. Um, and they set the priorities based on where rates are going up and the testing rate isn't what it should be. Um, we, we have certain zip codes that everybody's already assigned to and then we try to organize our outreach week to week. We've distributed over 130,000 masks. So I have a question. Um we discovered here, after talking to some people in the public health area, we did a similar thing where we redeployed some library staff. Did you find that it was, there were some communities that it was difficult for them to understand COVID, what it was and why this was an important thing and that they had some cultural beliefs that were kind of leading them in a different direction? I had a doctor once say he had talked to some patients from a certain culture that were saying, this is a punishment that we have this and I, we shouldn't be stopping it. This is, you know, it was a religious almost belief that they were being punished for something. Um, and, and other cultures were having a really difficult and languages were having a difficult time understanding what was happening because the information just wasn't there. Did you have a plan to deal with that? Did someone else provide that material and did you see that happening? We talked about it within our team. It was also a really big part of the discussions on the coordination calls with the other community-based organizations. I think in New York, compared to other places, we have to spend less time convincing people that it's a real threat just because we went through, you know, I remember almost a month of where I heard ambulance sirens 24 hours a day. So I think it's 
easier, the fact that it exists is less of a thing um, or that it's a threat. I've seen some of the cultural stuff come into play almost in which people's cultural practices that are really important to them get in there that people aren't willing to give those up for the sake of COVID. And there was a lot of tension between the city and some of these communities. And we were uniquely positioned because we were not the city because we're not government. We had more trust. I like that you mentioned that. And I, I was going to ask you that. It, did you feel overall that the library really played a significant role because you are a trusted place? I had one of my librarians would go to um, different Hispanic businesses to talk about the COVID regulations and what they had to do to reopen. Our state is, is a partially open state, mostly open state, and but they were afraid of the government. They saw her coming and she'd say health department and they'd all go, oh, no, go, no, no, library, library health department. And they were like, oh, okay, come talk to us then. It's okay if you're the library. So it sounds like you found, you saw that as well. Yeah. I mean, I think Borough Park was the most intense that it got, um, but that's because we were also had handed over our building to the health department. Um, but in general, yes, absolutely. You know, having some of our staff who actually live in the neighborhood, you know, and they work at the library. I think, um, yeah, like I was saying earlier, I think, you know, libraries are seen as less pushing an agenda and more just sort of having the information available and being, um, so people, there's a, there's a trust there for sure. Did you work with um, the populations of uh, people experiencing homelessness? I know we have a lot of centers where people are, they were getting the information, but we also have a lot of people experiencing homelessness who are just on their own out in their own camps and wherever. And I ran into one man in my neighborhood. He said, what, what are you talking about? And this was like in June and he had no idea that there was a pandemic. He had no idea that he could get sick. And I'm amazed he hadn't gotten sick prior to that, but um, it made me think about all over the country, how many people may not even be aware that there's COVID because if you don't have a device, if you're not, you don't have a home, you don't have a TV, you don't have power. How do you know what's going on there? And for some of us who constantly read about it, the information also changes all the time. And there's this huge background noise of all the misinformation too. It's, yeah, our age of information has turned into like an explosion of disinformation. <laughs> Were you able to reach those communities at all? Did you try and do that? Or um, so that we have had a social work program that partners specifically with an organization called Breaking Ground that does outreach to people who are um, living on the street or, or are unhoused. Um, that included one social worker for all of Brooklyn Public Library <laughs> and <laughs> um, two peer navigators. So we, we followed similar models to what a lot of other urban library systems have done. Um, and it was very beneficial, um, especially when our buildings were open, but we haven't done as much of that work 
right now when our buildings have been closed because one of the we're not we don't have like a big downtown library that um is also adjacent to like a place where a lot of people who are experiencing homelessness are um housing instability and homelessness is sort of like spread all over brooklyn um and so a lot of our social work program really engaged with people who were in the libraries as many other um, libraries have done. And once our buildings closed, we didn't have that same resource to offer people. One of the biggest things we could offer was sort of just like having a place to come in from the cold weather. And that because our buildings are not open, like that we are not providing that sort of baseline let alone social work support. Um, so we haven't done, other than sort of general canvassing, we haven't done any outreach that's been specific to people experiencing homelessness. I think that's a universal feeling. I know I was at a library that was close to a, a metro line and we got a lot of people, unhoused people, and it was so hard when we closed. They have no computer access and all of your benefits and everything come through computers. And we'd have people stopping us out in the parking lot saying, hey, I really need to just use a computer. And, you know, I think we really did reach the service. And I understand why we couldn't be open, but I don't know. It, it, I know we've all been very conflicted with this dilemma. Did you want to talk more about um, some of the other initiatives and things you have going on? aside from COVID back maybe when the world isn't upside down again and, and you can get back to that? Yeah. Um, well, the other thing we have going on is our Healthy Communities Initiative, uh, which we launched in October of 2019 with a big staff conference, a two-day staff conference that included lots of different community partners coming in and doing um presentations around our focus areas. And it included uh, a second day that was really focused on staff-led presentations, people sharing their programs that they had done on reproductive health, on food, around food, um, around mental health. And also had, we had like a hackathon because libraries love hackathons of any kind. <laughs> but it was a program hackathon where people created their own programs that they got funding to implement. Um, unfortunately, just as everything, all of those programs were about to launch, we also had created some toolkits um, around those focus areas. And we were about to do a big launch of programming. Literally when we were about to launch, everything shut down. Um, to the point where even our supplies, our building was closed. So all the supplies we'd ordered for our healthy communities programs got sent back because <laughs> there was no mail. No. Um, <laughs> so, um, but that did not stop us. So um, that was part of a, a national network of libraries of medicine, the NNLM, um, all of us community engagement grant. And that, um, some of the programs we continued and we offered them virtually. Um, we had also just started a healthy communities network where that had met um, of different community organizations where we just 
kind of introduced the library and talked about all the types of partnerships that are possible at a library and all the ways that we can support um, their work. And we had specifically reached out to certain partners that were supporting like things around mental health, maternal health, healthy aging, things that were in our sort of focus. Um, and those that, I think we only had one healthy communities network meeting, um, but out of that came a lot of our virtual programming for the rest of the year. Um, so we've partnered a lot with Presbyterian, New York Presbyterian and Methodist Hospital. Um, we've, we've done a lot of programs that we've hosted with, with, um, with local community partners and they are able to reach even similar to our buildings, a different audience than they would if they just hosted it themselves. Um, so we're doing a lot of sort of weekly virtual programs. We're doing a lot of health, sort of health and wellness series where we might have healthcare providers um, do a seminar or, you know, we have active and moving classes for everyone, um, yoga for chair yoga and, um, you know, different kinds of, of um, dance classes and things like that, as long as everyone like puts all their, you know, make sure they don't trip in their living room. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so we, we've continued to do a lot of that virtual programming. And now that staff, I think, are more settled into their branches, um, we've been starting to work more directly with some of the branch staff who had specific ideas for programming to try to reactivate the things that they had started. Yeah, most of our work in that area has been up to this point more around climate change. So we had like climate Wednesdays and we would have different speakers come in. Um, more recently, we're partnering with PBS Science Fridays um, or NPR Science Fridays and they're doing um, discussions and, and, and book discussions around that um, at Central Library where we're ordering what they call simultaneous use licenses of books so that people can, multiple people can check out an ebook at the same time. Um, I think, you know, if I was working in adult literacy, I definitely think it would be a really good topic for adult education classes um, and building that vocabulary. But I, I think it's hard. Like right now, what we're trying to do is just slow and steady, you know, go in and talk about these core public health messages in as many of our virtual programs as possible. Um, distribute the, the key messages. But I think about that all the time. Like, does anyone even know what asymptomatic transmission means? You know, what, you know, there's all of this vocabulary. I, I, I find myself on, you know, New York City's data website and they've changed the metrics several times and like a seven day rolling average and, you know, flattening the curve. I feel like I'm trying to like, educate myself and like sometimes just to make decide if I can go to the grocery store or like send my kids to school like I need to be an epidemiologist or like you know. and that's someone who's you know I'm spending a lot of time trying to figure it out I think it's I think it's hard I don't think it's necessarily always teaching all the jargon it's more it's more boiling it down so that the messaging is clear 
But I think the other piece of this, and our Utah Health Literacy Coalition deals with this on a level, the medical world speaks on a 12th to 15th grade level, right? The people who come in our buildings, and, and most of us, read and understand anywhere from a fourth to an eighth grade reading level. And so this stuff comes out and people have no clue what they're saying. And it isn't even a question of whether they believe it or not. It's just, what does that mean? I don't get, I've talked to these medical people, they'll send me stuff and they'll say, what do you think about putting this out? And I'll scratch out almost every word and say, why do you have to say inoculation? Why don't you just say a shot? Why do you have to say la 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 medication? Just say the drug makes you better. You know, make it as simple as you can for people to understand. And they're like, no, we have to be accurate and say these important words that no one understands. And I feel that there's a lot of that out there. Um, I also, though, the big issue I think we're facing now that has changed our world in the last few months, last year, is people used to believe what we said. We were trusted and information, the library was considered a good information source. And science was fairly respected and, and believed. And that's just turned on its head right now. And we get people, you know, will say something, well, that's not true. And we're like, yeah, it is. <laughs> what do you mean it's not true? And it, it's, you know, it's like, I, I heard a meme the other day that just made me laugh. And they said, I have this horrible disease, doctor. Or I was, they were talking to me, so I have this horrible disease. Who should I go see? And are you sending me to this specialist, this doctor? He says, no, I'm sending you to the comments section of Facebook because that's where the experts are, right? And it's like, you know, who do you trust? The people with all these degrees or the guy who flunked, you know, 12th grade science? And yet that's, we have this battle and I don't know, I'm just not sure how we're going to handle that. I think it's something the library community really needs to work on is how to make how to help people understand fact and what is fact and what is opinion and that science may change and we get new information, but that doesn't mean it's wrong and that it just changes. And I don't know when you said that about your uh, program that you were starting the initiative and you talked about the, you were trying to overcome the inaccuracies that people have because people have many I feel like that's just increased exponentially and I'm not sure how you're going to do that coming out of COVID. I'd be really interested to hear what, how you deal with that and how you navigate that when we're out of COVID. Yeah. I mean, I think it also has to do what you're saying about just speaking plainly and clearly, I think is really important, but it, it also made me think about access. Like, you know, it's easier for someone to go on Facebook and ask a question and get, 10 opinions than it is to go on Medline Plus. So we need to figure out a way for people to not like Google vaccine, but to <laughs> trust. Um, I think we still have the trust within a library yeah. um, and we can't squander it. Like it's a resource we have to guard. We can't get, but I, I feel like we need to find a way to go beyond thinking of it like database training. Yeah and have it be more about sort of where do you get your information, you know, information literacy, but um, people aren't usually, you know, breaking down the door for information literacy. So I think we need to figure out ways to like embed that stuff into our regular work. Well, I wonder how much stuff is coming in through chat 
reference and email reference. I haven't asked our librarians that if they're getting those kinds of questions or if everyone just thinks they're an expert at this point. Um, it's, yeah, I do think it's gonna be a challenge ongoing. And I think it's a challenge right now we're transitioning from the question of, you know, what keeps us safe from COVID and if is it real to the vaccine where you have to get two vaccines and you know, there's a lot of medical mistrust and that's gonna be a huge task for all of us. I mean, to understand, can we trust the process of how to make sure that it's safe? And um, I think about it, I, we did learn a lot from our social work program and how they use a harm reduction model around substance abuse and a mental illness. And I've been trying to think about approaching all of this stuff like with a harm reduction model, rather than just thinking, you know, you jerk, why can't you just <laughs> stay in your house and keep a mask on? <laughs> so trying to think about how we do that in our customer service with people, knowing that people are often in kind of a strange place emotionally right now, like all of us. Um, and also in having these conversations whether it's distributing masks or giving out information about vaccines of like trying to take a non-judgmental approach while also offering information and knowing what that harm reduction model is. So what I understand harm reduction model to be, I've mostly thought about it around um, like offering services around substance abuse that um, public health workers or social workers um, it's like rather than, you know, a, an example is needle, needle um, distribution, clean needle distribution, which we haven't done at the library, but we have talked at times about putting, you know, um, safe, safe disposal um, into all of our bathrooms. Um, but basically the idea that you can't just say don't use drugs, that 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 sometimes you just need to think about rather than just like completely cut it out, um, talk about what, what could reduce the harm to that person. So rather than having, you know, drug use be illegal, what if you had more clean needles available or you offered people other kinds of assistance, maybe even if you know, if, if you think that the most harmful thing they're doing is substance abuse, you might still go at it by talking about food access or things like that, that you're just trying to find ways to, to, is that, I mean, I'm not a public health person, so I'm just. <laughs> no, that makes sense. And we're sort of, I think that's really important. We, we do have needle uh, boxes in our, Ooh, I don't have any in my new one. I need to do that. Um, in our old library, I had some, and I would get people coming in saying, why do you have those needle boxes in there? And I kind of wanted to say, well, why do you think, <laughs> you know, it was like, do you not recognize that maybe we have drug users in the community? And, but we also gave out, and we still do give out free naloxone um, needles and the stuff. And, and I've been amazed how fast people come in to get that. And we've had some people who don't understand and they're saying, well, you're just encouraging drug use. And we're like, no, we're discouraging death. We're not encouraging drug use. And, and I have so many people who come in and say, well, I have a son. I, I, my roommate, 
you know, I'm worried that at some point they're going to OD and I want to be prepared or whatever. So I thought, I think that's what you're talking about is that that makes a lot of sense because you, you're right. You can't just tell somebody stop using drugs. Right. And I don't know if New York is like Utah, but to get into a drug treatment program is not easy. It, you can't just walk in the door and say, Hey, I'm ready to quit. Help me. You know, you've got to, the moment you have that, there should be treatment available. So when that you hit rock bottom and you're ready to change, you can get it. Instead, you have to wait weeks and months. And by then, you know, life has changed. Yeah. No, it's, it's one of those things that gets lost in the mix. We had a panel um, as part of our justice initiatives of looking at sort of the intersection of incarceration and public health. Um, we do these um, like twice a month. Um, and they're mostly focused on issues around, you know, the, the justice system and incarceration. But one of the speakers just talked about, we were in the, we were already in the middle of an epidemic with, with opioids. And this is on top of that, like that didn't go away. Um, and so sort of that, will be another place where that's going to still be there when this all goes away. <laughs> Probably worse. Probably yeah. yeah. Right. Um, but, you know, she was just talking about that and how and addressing the opioid ec- epidemic and yeah. Um, but I really like that- how you guys work with the incarcerated. The one thing I remember when I came and visited your library was you had an art display and I don't know I can't remember exactly the library's part in this, but it was, they went to the prisons and asked each prisoner who was there for like life, what their, what, if they could have any picture in their cell, what would it be? And some would say this city scene, or some would say these woods or this mountain or whatever, this lake. And then you had artists actually draw those, those pictures and give them to those prisoners. And I thought that was the most uh, unique and wonderful program I'd ever seen. That was from our arts and culture. And they did, I think people really responded to that. It was, it was beautiful. They had, yeah, you, you saw the written description of what people requested. And then you saw the photograph or the painting. Um, yeah, I think um, we have a, a jail and prison services program that's been going on now for since about 2013, um, where we go into um, jails and distribute, we have weekly book cart service. Um, Now we've been doing it all through mail um, and talk about not having access to information or basic public health um, precautions like hand sanitizer or masks. Um, But uh, one of our group, some of our staff are, are working on a zine about COVID that they're going to distribute in um, Rikers. Um, and it, that's a challenging thing, obviously, because the information has changed, of course, since they first started working on it. But and sometimes you can put I mean, especially with incarcerated um, people, you can put what's supposed to happen. And then there's what really happens like, you know. If you have symptoms, you should contact the health center or whatever. <laughs> the chances of, yeah, it's, it's, it doesn't always work the way it should, but. Is there anything you're doing now or do you have plans 
for in the future when we can open again? So we do have plans for the future. Um, we want to start to relaunch a virtual version of our Brooklyn supports program, which was our coffee. That's sort of a standard model for a lot of social work programs and libraries. It's coffee and conversations. So the social worker or peer, a lot of times peers will set up coffee and information and snacks and people just come up to the table and talk to talk, um, pick, get a cup of coffee, sometimes talk about resources or if they're looking um, for housing or, or have another need, but it's very informal. So people don't have to identify themselves. It's just sort of in the, on the floor of the library. So we are trying to figure out how to do that virtually. <laughs> um, and I think we can do it. We just have, we have to, I think the COVID outreach work, the test and trace outreach work we've done has given me more confidence to do some outdoor outreach type of things. Um, and that in-person engagement safe, I feel like we can do it safely. Um, and that still has to be a part of things because obviously a lot of the people we tried to reach with Brooklyn Supports don't probably have access to the internet. So I think in terms of severe mental illness and that's sort of the next thing that we're gonna be doing. Um, but in general, you know, one of the things we've been focusing on is just breaking isolation. And so, you know, we work with homebound people. Um, so we have a phone buddies program where library staff have been matched up with the homebound patrons that we serve through books by mail, um, just to do wellness checks and say hi. Um, and we did work uh, meet a little bit with our city partners so that we at least know how to refer people to more services if it's needed. Um, but isolation is a huge challenge right now. Um, I think also I've been thinking about, you know, doing more training around trauma um, and around what we've all, what we're all going through for young people and for our staff too, like to do some training around trauma so that we understand each other and we're able to sort of better understand when we do open our doors, all the different ways people may be behaving. Um, so I've been thinking a little bit about that, but um, yeah, I think it's hard. I'd be, I'd be curious to know what it's been like for you to have those 30 minute intervals and what to do when someone's vulnerable and you feel like this is a safe place for them. Yeah, it's been tough. Um, in my building, we just, you know, at, at some point you have to say, you know, I'm sorry you've been here a while. And we're, we generally try and be accommodating and I'm sure we're letting them stay longer than 30 minutes. We don't have a stopwatch on them or anything. And so far we have not hit our max of, of, the number of people who can be in our building. And so we're a little bit more lenient, but I think the harder ones are the ones that get a little belligerent and angry um, that we even have a restriction or that they can't, we aren't doing programming. Um, I think it's hard on staff. It's really, I agree that staff really needs some, some moral support that self-care is really important. And yet it's really tough to get right now because usually you have a place to go where you can give yourself self-care. And now we're kind of going from one stressful situation to home, which is generally also a stressful situation. And 
I think we've got to figure out some really good mental health. We have a good uh, healthy lifestyles program here in our Salt Lake County, and they're always sending out stuff to the employees. You know, let's do this fun thing. We have mindful Mondays and uh, just a lot of ideas, and they're trying to really buoy up the, the staff. And I think they're doing a good job. But, you know, I think we still just, we have this role that we want to serve our patrons and we're not able to. We don't have those programs. We can't have where you sit down and talk with somebody and let them spill their guts for a while because you have to be six feet apart. And there's no sense of that intimacy or that privacy, right? We can't go in a meeting room because they're not open. And you just can't do the stuff you want to do to help people. I think we're going to really regret this on the other side that we didn't figure out a better way to do it. But you're absolutely right. The people who need it often do not have access to the internet, or if they do, they don't have the skills to know all the different places to go. It's not, it's not enough just to give somebody a computer and a hotspot and say, okay, you know, now you've got to give them the tools and the skills to know where to go and how to navigate it. And we aren't able to do that right now. I think it's really um, a good place to end up in our conversation of just talking about staff and talking about the people who work in libraries. And if the audience for this podcast is also, you know, public health professionals to not forget about libraries. We're not sitting quietly behind a desk (laughs) to know that often some of the most vulnerable people who really need support are often in our spaces and library staff are often asked to respond um, and could use more support for that, both that the professional side of that work of being able to navigate resources and support people and also the emotional labor that comes with it. Um, And to sort of be recognized for our role in the system in that way, even if we're not, seen as officially part of the system. We're seeing people. <laughs> as I talk to the public health people, often I'll have, I'll hear them say things like, you guys are just social workers. You know that. You guys do the same work we do. You know, just, you don't know it. I think we need to look at those public health workers though, too. I know right now Utah is like hundred percent capacity in their, in their hotel, in their hospitals. And, and they are stressed to the max. I mean, those, the people that work in those buildings and you can't just turn anybody into a nurse or a technician or somebody. And so it's tough. It's really tough for them. And I think it would be nice to get some kind of initiatives going to help all essential services people that are just stressed to the max out there. That wraps up today's episode of Share Public Health. We hope you will join us next week as we explore the concept of fine free public libraries with the director of the Northern Region Office of the Network for Public Health Law, Jill Kruger, JD. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Share Public Health. Thank you to our host, Trish Hull, the Network of the National Libraries of Medicine, the Public Library Association, the Midwestern Public Health Training Center, and the Prevention Research Center for Rural Health. This project is supported by the National Library of Medicine of the National Institutes of Health under award number UG4LM 
The content is solely the responsibility of the authors and does not necessarily represent the official views of the National Institutes of Health.